I invite you to turn in God's holy word to Ephesians chapters 1, 5, and 6. Boys and girls, this morning we're hearing God's word about the fact that you children of believing parents are part of God's church, you're part of his family, and we want to consider that by way of Ephesians here and then reading in the Heidelberg Catechism. The main verses that I want to draw your attention to are are chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, but I want to read some things to set that in context. First of all, Ephesians 1, verses 1 through 3, God's word. Ephesians 1 at verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Then to chapter 5. Chapter 5 at verse 15. Chapter five fifteen. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he's the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, So let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment, with promise, that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. And you fathers... Do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Bond servants, 
Be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart, as to Christ, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And you masters, do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. We end our scripture reading there. If you take out the forms and prayers book, the smaller forms and prayers book in the pew in front of you, the chair in front of you, and if you would turn in that book to page 229, you would be inside of the Heidelberg Catechism. And that's one of our three confessions, and our confessions are summaries of the Bible in which we confess what we believe the Bible teaches. And so we're up to what's called Lord's Day 27 on page 229. And in, it's in the section talking about baptism. Baptism is one of the sacraments, one of the signs God has given to us to teach us more about the gospel and to show us how true it is. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are the two sacraments God gave to his church. And we've already looked at baptism, but now in question 72, it says, Does this outward washing with water itself wash away sins? And the answer is no. Only Jesus Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit cleanse us from all sins. And then it's asked question 73, Well, then why does the Holy Spirit call baptism the water of rebirth and the washing away of sins? Answer, God has good reason for these words. To begin with, he wants to teach us that the blood and spirit of Christ take away our sins just as water removes dirt from the body. But more importantly, he wants to assure us by this divine pledge and sign that we are as truly washed of our sins spiritually as our bodies are washed with water physically. Then turning the page to page 230, this is where we want to focus today on question 74. It says, should infants... And it means here the infants of Christians, the infants of believers, not all babies in the world, but should the babies, the infants of believers also be baptized? And the answer is yes. Infants as well as adults are included in God's covenant and people. And they, no less than adults, are promised deliverance from sin through Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit who works faith. Therefore, by baptism, the sign of the covenant they too should be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the Old Testament by circumcision, which was replaced in the New Testament by baptism. Let's bow to ask God to bless us in his word today. Our Father in heaven, we do humble ourselves before you to acknowledge that we know nothing but what you give us to know in truth, and that we receive nothing but by the faith that you impart. And so, Lord, we ask that you would cause your word to be preached truthfully today, and that you would give us grace to understand your word. And we pray your spirit will use his tool in our lives to form and fashion us according to your will. We thank you, Lord, for your word, and we pray you would visit us now in Jesus' name. Amen. 
congregation of Christ, are children part of the church? Are the children of believers members of the covenant of grace? Or do they become members when they repent and believe? Are they outside the covenant of grace until through repentance and faith they come into the covenant of grace? That, as they say, that is the question. I think that maybe this morning, though I want to focus on this truth that our children are part of God's church and part of his covenant of grace, it might be helpful just in the introduction here to put this in the context in case maybe you're wrestling with the question, should our children be baptized, or if you're talking to someone who, who b- believes what we call believer's baptism view, uh, the credo-baptist view, and you're wondering what the differences are between the Reformed understanding of baptism and, and theirs, uh, I think both Reformed scholars and Baptist scholars would agree on this, on this thing, that this question that the issue is, or at least one of the major issues, if not the issue, is how are we to regard the children of believers? How are we to understand them? How are we to define church membership? Does it include them? Just by way of a sample here, let me read two quotes. One from um, a book called Believer's Baptism, Sign of the New Covenant in Christ, edited by Schreiner and Wright. Uh, In the introduction, they write, We believe that baptism should be reserved for believers because it preserves the testimony of the gospel by showing that only those who have repented and believed belong to the church. And then in a book by John Hammett called Biblical Foundations for Baptist Churches, he has a chapter that's entitled Regenerate Church Membership, the Baptist mark of the church, regenerate or born-again church membership, the, the Baptist mark of the church. And he writes, it's a little bit longer quote, he writes, those who advocate regenerate church membership acknowledge that the children of believing parents have a great blessing and many advantages, but they would note that the children of believing parents must still trust Christ personally to be saved, and until they are saved, they are not proper subjects of baptism. For baptism in the New Testament is baptism of believers only. And since Baptists agree with most other Christian denominations that baptism is the proper ceremonial rite for initiation into church membership, they object both to baptizing infants and to including them among the church's membership, for both are appropriate only for believers." Well, that's just a little sampling, I think, of of the the Baptist position, that the church membership is only believers. And until you can express that faith, you can't be a member. But the Westminster Confession, Reform Persuasion, says, The visible church consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion, true believers, and of their children. And the Heidelberg Catechism, as we've read it, This morning says that infants are included in God's covenant and people, and by the sign of the covenant, they should be incorporated into the Christian church. So you see the difference, and maybe that will help you understand something of the difference on whether children should be baptized. A major question, if not the major question, is are the children of believers part of the church or not? Are they part of the covenant or not? And so we have a difference of understanding here. 
with our Baptist brothers and sisters. The argument for baptizing our children is actually quite simple, as the Heidelberg Catechism presents it, right? It's, it's that our children are part of God's covenant of grace, number one. Number two, baptism is the sign of the covenant of grace, and therefore, all the members of the covenant should have the sign, including the children. And so, but today, I think in the past, I, when I preached tonight, I tried to cover the whole gamut and the different uh, debates and arguments and all that. I don't want to do that this morning. What I want to do is emphasize this wonderful reality that children and believers are part of the church. I think it's glorious and affects our parenting and our praying and all of that. And so I want to narrow our focus and... Uh, We want to look at the place that God's given to the little children of believers, the place he's given them, and then secondly, the provision that God makes for them. So first of all, the place. Well, the place that God has given children in the Old Testament was a place in the midst of Israel with their parents. And that's evident in a lot of places, but Genesis 17, of course, is important in that God, having covenanted with Abraham, then in Genesis 17, says to Abraham, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. And then God institutes the sign, the covenant sign of circumcision, and God says, it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. But then God says that all of your males... Infants at eight days old must be circumcised. So clearly in the Old Covenant, God regards the children of Abraham as his children and have to come under the covenant sign. They're part of the covenant. Circumcision itself didn't save anyone. It was applying the knife to the male organ of procreation. And by that, God was saying that that sin, you are corrupt from the very core, from the beginning of your being. And so circumcision was really a sign of cleansing. And God would go on to say in the Bible that he needs to circumcise our hearts. And so it was a picture of that. And God was promising, says, I will be your God. You will be my people. That's the covenant promise. And God was saying, I'm the kind of God who will wash you and fit you for my fellowship. That's what circumcision promised. And then throughout the Old Testament, the children of believers are accounted one with their believing parents. So as you read the Old Testament, at every turn when God deals with the parents, he also deals with their children in the same breath. God extends to the children also his promises, his love, his care. And God at times even specifically mentions that. Like Deuteronomy 31, when Moses says every seven years you need to assemble for the reading of the law. And he says, gather the people together, men and women and little ones, and the stranger who's within your gates, that they may hear, that they may learn to fear the Lord your God. And then in the Old Testament songbook, right? What church, what was their songbook in the Old Testament church? It was the book of Psalms. And in that book, God taught them to sing things like Psalm 22. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Or Psalm 147, praise the Lord, O Jerusalem, praise your God, O Zion, for he has strengthened the bars of your gates, he has blessed your children within you. And if Israel didn't think God was very serious about regarding their children as his children, they must have got the point when the prophet Ezekiel came to rebuke them, and they had fallen into a terrible pagan practice of actually sacrificing their children on the altar, burning them up. And God in Ezekiel 
16 says, You took your sons and your daughters whom you bore to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your acts of harlotry a small matter? That you have slain my children. So God calls them your children, then he says they're my children. And the Lord is very jealous for them. Well, we could go on, but I think you get the point that in the Old Covenant, God is, is quite clear that the children of believers were part of Israel. They were part of the covenant community. God calls them his own children. The promises are for them. They stand on the same footing as their parents. Male infants at eight days old receive the same covenant sign as Abraham received, and they receive it for the same reason, because they're part of the covenant. The same promises of the covenant that were for adults were for children, and so forth. Now, the difference that we often have with our Baptist friends is that um, they see more discontinuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament than we do. So they think that at the New Testament, things change much more than we think they change, I guess you would say. Um, sometimes you hear people talk about in the Old Covenant that it was more external, and in the New Covenant, it's more internal. In the Old Covenant, it was uh, about a nation. It was uh, about a corporate people. It included a mix of believers and unbelievers. The promise was about physical things like land. But now in the New Covenant, it's more personal, more maybe individual at times. It's uh, more internal. And the promises are not physical things, but spiritual. Um, I don't know if everyone would agree with me putting it just like that. But something to that effect, they would say there's a great difference now in terms of the New Covenant. And we would say, well, the New Covenant is the fulfillment of the Old Covenant. And we don't see a great deal of discontinuity in the way God deals. Because the same promises are found in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now in the New Covenant, Christ comes and the Spirit is poured out in a greater fullness. But it's really the same promises. And, and what's really important, we see, is that in Acts chapter 2, where you stand on the threshold of the New Covenant, right? Because in, in the Old Testament, the prophets prophesied a New Covenant where the, the Spirit would be poured out. That happens in Acts 2 at Pentecost. And at the moment that's happening, Peter preaches, and this is what he says to the Jews who've killed Jesus. He tells them to repent and believe, and then he's, and you'll receive these, the promises, the Spirit. And then he says, for the promise is to you and your children, and to all who are far off, and even as many as the Lord our God will call. So in the New Covenant, now there's something new. There's going to be a missionary movement. The gospel's going to go to many out there and call them into the covenant. But so far as the old thing with God dealing with parents and children, the promise to you, Abraham, and to your children, that stays the same. The promises to you and your children, Peter preaches at the beginning of the implications, the effects of the New Covenant. And then we have confirmation of that throughout the New Testament. And I think some strong confirmation are, are the passages in Ephesians and then in Colossians, a parallel passage where children are called to obey their parents. And let me explain why. Let's think about that passage for a minute here. Remember that the New Testament letters or epistles were written to churches. Um, you open 1 Corinthians and it says to the church of God in Corinth. Okay, So most of the letters are written, some to, to individuals, but mostly to churches and and then you remember that these letters are, are, are being read to the people together, presumably when they're gathered for worship. 
If you look at the end of Colossians, for instance, Paul says, Now, when, they, when this epistle is read among you, see that it's also read to the church of Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from the Laodiceans. So Paul is writing these letters, and he wants them circulated. You can imagine the assembly of God's people and worship like this, and they say, hey, we've got a new letter from Paul, and they read the letter to the assembled people. And since that's the case, it's remarkable that in a letter written out to the church, the Apostle Paul addresses the children. Children. We get the impression that God would expect when they met for worship that the children would be present. That, of course, is one of the reasons why Reformed churches tend to shy away from a a separate children's church. Because, because as we read scripture, it seems that God wants children to assemble with their parents and to be together beneath his word and his blessing. The whole community comes together. In fact, you see that in Ephesians, right? Because you have a word addressed to wives, then a word addressed to husbands, a word addressed to children, a word addressed to parents, a word addressed to slaves, a word addressed to masters. And, and so you get the sense that there's this diverse body, but they're all one and they're all standing, as it were, before the Lord to hear his word to them. And in that midst are children. Now, I read the the opening of Ephesians because it doesn't say to the church, but it says to the saints who are in Ephesus. That's who's being addressed in this letter. And saints means holy ones, which doesn't refer, first of all, to a moral quality of our hearts, but refers to the fact that we've been set apart to God. We have been set apart from the world unto the Lord. We are sanctified to God. And in the group of those who are sanctified or set apart to the Lord, Paul says there's children. Children. And then you add to that, that when he tells these children to obey their parents, he tells them to obey their parents in the Lord. Isn't that remarkable? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, Ephesians 6.1. He's going to go on in verse 10 of the same chapter to say, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Now, in the Lord signals a relationship with the Lord, doesn't it? You don't call unbelievers to be strong in the Lord. You call them to repent and turn to the Lord. You call them to come to the Lord, but you don't tell them to be strong in the Lord. That's what you tell Christians. And similarly, you don't tell unbelieving children and unbelieving homes, children, obey your parents in the Lord. You say, you need to turn to the Lord and learn to obey his commandments. You see, in one of those books, Baptist books I mentioned earlier, I was intrigued by the foreword by Timothy George when he writes, because biological childhood can never be transformed into spiritual childhood, we do not say to our children, be a good Christian child, but rather repent and believe the gospel. You see the difference? I think Paul says exactly that, be a good Christian child. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. I don't mean that he gives a moralism, be good, no. But that he gives a gospel call, obey in the Lord. Be a good Christian child. Trust in Jesus and obey. Repent when you dishonor your parents. Obey them in the Lord. You see, so I don't think Paul is saying, children, 
Repent and believe, and if you repent and believe, then you'll come into the church. But he's presuming they already stand in some relationship with the Lord. Children, obey your parents in the Lord because you are in the Lord. Legally, covenantally speaking, you stand in a set-apart relationship to the Lord. But what does that mean? It means that they're members of the covenant. I think what it means is, is it's, we're helped when we look at what Paul does here. As soon as he says that, verse 1, then he says, Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. And so he goes on to appeal back to Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, the giving of the Ten Commandments. And you remember in Exodus chapter 20, when God gives the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, God addressed a particular commandment to the children, right? Also for parents, they have to honor their parents in their old age. But, but is it particularly for children, honor your father and mother? That's one of the Ten Commandments. And who were the people at Mount Sinai who were being addressed? Well, remember the all-important prologue to the Ten Commandments. The commandments are not addressed to all the pagan peoples of the world who are far from God. The Ten Commandments are not a list of rules to all the nations that says if you all start to obey these commandments, then you can find a way to God or be reconciled to God. No. The Ten Commandments are addressed to a very specific people. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. They're addressed to the people that God brought out of slavery in Egypt. And it's to this people, Israel, he says, I am the Lord, your God. God didn't say it to the Egyptians. God didn't say it to the Canaanites. God didn't say it to the Philistines. All of those could be saved if they repented and believed and came in. Right? From any nation in the Old Testament, you could be saved If you came into Israel, if you repented of your old pagan ways and put your hope in Israel's God, you could be saved. But you had to come in. But it's to one people, those whom God liberated from bondage in Egypt, that God says, I am the Lord, your God. Israel was in covenant with God. They didn't need to come into covenant fellowship. They were not. Remember what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 about the Gentiles? You were without God and without hope in the world. That's what you were. You were without God and without hope in the world. Now, that's not the language he uses for the children in the church, is it? He doesn't say you were without God and with hope, but repent and believe and you can come in. No, he says children. Obey your parents in the Lord. You see? In the Old Covenant, God says, I'm the Lord your God, and he gives a commandment to children, honor your father and mother. He's saying, I'm the God who saved you. And if they wondered, well, did he save our children too? God would say, are your children with you? Did they come out of Egypt? Did he lead them to the Red Sea? Yeah, he saved them. Did they escape the angel of death? Did your five-year-old son get killed by the angel of death? No. Why not? Well, because... They were with you beneath the blood of the Passover lamb. They were shielded with you in your house that had the blood smeared on it. They sheltered with you beneath the blood. And so it was very clear to Israel that their children were saved with them. Now you go back to Ephesians chapter 6 in a letter written to the church. 
Paul's addressing saints, people set apart to the Lord. And he's addressing wives and husbands. And you notice with wives and husbands, he's calling them to gospel obedience. When he says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, that's not something you say to unbelieving wives. And then he calls husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's not something you say to an unbelieving coworker at work. He doesn't know anything about the love of the Lord laying down his life. So Paul's addressing Christians in this text, isn't he? Those who stand in relationship to God. And it goes on and on, right? The same thing with regard to, to slaves and masters and all of that. He calls them to do it, even slaves, as to Christ, to realize that they're bondservants of Christ. Masters, you have a master in heaven. And in between wives and husbands who are to do it unto the Lord and slaves and masters who are to fulfill their role unto the Lord, he speaks to fathers and to children. Not just any fathers, but to fathers who are prepared to train up their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And then to children who are called to obey their parents in the Lord. So I think all of that is important. It reminds us, it shows us that that our children, God regards them as his children. He has placed them in the church. They also are under the preaching of the word. They have a Savior, Jesus Christ. They shelter beneath the blood with their parents. They belong to the Lord. God has placed them in that relationship. He's made them promises. He's also given them obligations, and he's even given them threats and warnings. Just as in the Old Testament, the children of Israel had a legal standing in the covenant, so in the new covenant. In fact, it's interesting, isn't it? That even the promise is repeated. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. You see, that also is not something you say to pagan children. It's not a word that if you're good enough and obey your parents, then you can get God's blessing. We don't say that to unbelievers. This is a promise of grace, undeserved favor. And God's saying, if you walk in covenant with me, you'll enjoy my blessings. That's said to his people, to his children. And so I think all that's important. Herman Bovink in Reformed Dogmatics writes, The validity of infant baptism, the validity of infant baptism depends exclusively on how Scripture regards the children of believers and hence wants us to regard them. If Scripture speaks about such children in the same way it does about adult believers, the right and hence the duty to practice infant baptism has been established. For we may not withhold from the children what we grant to adults. Well, brothers and sisters, I would submit to you that Ephesians 6 shows us that God regards our children the same way he regards us as believers. It's not some automatic salvation that every child born in a Christian home is by definition going to heaven no matter how they live. Now, our children, as they grow up, must be taught to embrace this God of the covenant, believe on the Savior he's provided. And if they forsake this Lord, then they throw away their inheritance. If they cut themselves off as Esau did, then they face the curses of the covenant. But if you ask, how does Scripture regard the children of believers? It seems a very strong case that he regards them 
as his own children. Well, let's look a second this morning at the provision that God makes for children. I want to mention four things. First of all, one of the provisions God makes is the blood of the covenant, the blood of Christ and the Holy Spirit. The Catechism says, should infants be baptized? And the answer is yes, infants as well as adults are included in God's covenant and people, and they no less than adults are promised deliverance from sin through Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit who works faith. I mentioned already that in the Old Testament, clearly children were under the blood of the Passover lamb and saved in that way as that blood pointed forward to the true Lamb of God. Because, of course, animal blood doesn't save anyone. Well, God gave his Son to be the Savior of the world and of children, too. Already in Isaiah 40, God said that he would gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. In the New Covenant, you look at Jeremiah 32 or Ezekiel 37, when the New Covenant promises are made, children are mentioned specifically. And then in the New Testament, Jesus comes to the Jewish children, the covenant children, and when his disciples try to push the children away, Jesus is upset. Let the little children come to me. He takes them in his arms. Luke tells us there were brephos, babies. He blesses them and calls them heirs of heaven. He says the kingdom belongs to such as these. And so we see that in the Bible, there's no age limit for salvation. There's no age limit for salvation in the Bible. God's grace knows no boundaries of age. Christ died so even infants can go to heaven. The Holy Spirit is not hindered in his work by how old you are. We have testimony that Jeremiah and certainly John the baptizer had the working of God's Spirit in their hearts when they were in the womb. We don't baptize our children because we presume they are regenerate or born again. We baptize them because they belong to the covenant. They stand in this covenantal relationship to God. His promises are for them. He may bring new life to the dead heart of one of his elect. He may bring regeneration before baptism in the womb. He may bring regeneration at the moment of baptism while the sign is being applied if he chooses. Or he may bring regeneration to one of the elect a year or five years or whatever it is down the road. But God is not bound by how old we are in the working of his spirit. The promise of Christ, his blood, and his spirit is a promise to you and to your children. Secondly, God has provided parents to teach them. Ephesians 6 verse 4 follows up the command for children. Ephesians 6 4, And you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Now, because inheriting is vital, and it's possible to forsake the covenant and become a covenant breaker and to lose the inheritance, nothing can be more vital than to have godly parents that train you to know your sin, train you to cry out to Jesus, who train you to run to the Savior. Parents are called to that great task, to train their children, to make disciples of them. Already in Exodus 13, God said, And all the firstborn of man among you, your sons, you shall redeem. So it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is this that you shall say to him, By strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. There's a calling to, to gospelize your children. When they say, What is this that I, the firstborn, have to be redeemed? You say, well, you deserve to die. 
God could have slew you in Egypt. But he has given us this process to redeem you because he's the God of redemption. Tell your children the gospel. We read it in Deuteronomy 6, right? Hear, O Israel, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And then teach these things to your children diligently. Does the Bible know of a neutral upbringing? Where God says, I put these children in your home. I don't want you to, you know, think of them as Christians or or anything like that. You present them the gospel. And you let them make a completely, completely free and independent choice. Well, that's not at all how the Bible speaks. Tell your children God redeemed them. Tell your children to obey in the Lord. See, the, the whole thrust of, of the task for parents in the Bible, Christian parents, is to tell your children they belong to the Lord and they owe him their lives. When I was in seminary, my first year of seminary, they sent me to a church to teach catechism class to uh, ninth graders had a big class I don't know 15 or 18 kids and and one of the guys wasn't doing his catechism work at all so I spoke to the parents and the parents replies well we don't want to cram this down his throat you know which to some degree right you can understand what they're saying but on the other hand it sounded a little bit like how the world raises kids just present the options Present the choices, and they'll make a good choice. But that's not at all what Christian parents are called to in the Bible. They're called to press the obligation. To press the obligation. You are the Lord's. He's made these promises to you. You must respond to him in faith and repentance. You see, every single father or single mother... If there's no husband or a father in the home, every single parent in that place of authority needs to say with Joshua, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But if we don't believe our children belong to God, or if you take the position that they're outside of the covenant community, outside the church until they believe, I think you get into a lot of difficulty then because can you teach them to sing Jesus loves me? Can you ask them to pray our father in heaven? Is he their father? Are the promises for them? Can they be sure God is on their side? Or do we have to wait until they repent and believe and then those things become their promises? You see? You see the problem you get into here? I think God is saying to parents in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, I have redeemed you. I've given the blood. Tell your children the good, good news and call them to be faithful to me, to believe the promises. Well, thirdly, God's given them the sign to use. Maybe that's begging the question here, but that's one of the provisions is the covenant sign. Um, God is pleased to use signs to help our faith. In the Old Testament, covenant boys got the sign of circumcision, and that could be a help to their growing faith. Signs in the Bible are not so much us speaking to God, and that we through the sign want to communicate something to God, but signs are God speaking to us to assure us of something. And why can't children have the sign to help their growing faith? You see, as adults, we don't get the sign of baptism when we finally have arrived. We get the signs that our whole journey along, as we stumble along, we can remember, as real as the water, so really does Jesus wash me. 
But don't our children, aren't they entitled to that same comfort? In all their struggles, in all their sin, don't they have the right and entitlement to the sign to say God means it, he will wash me? Some say, well, there's nowhere in the New Testament you have an infant baptism. That's true. There's no explicit mention of an infant baptism. There are, however, household baptisms. At least three of them mentioned. Acts 16 and 1 Corinthians 1, I think it is. Some say, well, it doesn't say there's an infant. Okay. But the whole movement of redemptive history is to include the children under the covenant sign, right? Thousands of years in the Old Testament. So is there a text that says God no longer includes children? That's the real question. Where's the burden of proof? The burden of proof is on those who say, in the New Testament, it's all changed now. And you see, the other thing is that we have household baptisms, which suggest children at least. But you know what we don't have in the New Testament at all? We don't have any adult baptism of someone who is born in a Christian home. We don't have any adult baptism of someone born in a Christian home. Why is that important? Well, because in the baptistic model, you wait until your children are old enough to believe, and then they get baptized. But there's not a single instance in the New Testament where a child born in a Christian home has to wait and then get baptized. There are lots of adult baptisms in the New Testament, but there are people who are hearing the gospel for the first time. Jews who just now learned who the Messiah was, or Gentiles who've never heard of Christ before. But the idea that children in believing homes wait and grow up and then get baptized, there's no example of that ever happening in the New Testament. So God gives the sign. I think we're called to use it. But as we use the sign, finally this morning, one more provision God makes are frightful warnings. Frightful warnings. Our Baptist brothers and sisters are very concerned about the purity of the church. And they're very concerned about us deceiving our children by giving them a covenant sign and then our children just grow up and think, oh, I got the sign, I'm good to go, I can live as I please. And you have to appreciate their concern, don't you? Because hypocrisy is always a problem in the church and covenant presumption is a deadly, deadly sin. I think the way that God deals with that is by the warnings in Scripture. God, in all of his grace, makes a covenant. says, I will be your God. You will be my people. I promise to save you. And then he gives obligations and says, you must trust in me. You must love me. You must live for me. And then he gives blessings and says, if you walk with me in the covenant, my blessings will pour upon you. And then he gives warnings. And he says, if you forsake me, then all the curses of the covenant will fall on your head. When those who are baptized walk away from the Lord, when they desert his church, turn from God, baptism is not a sign I'm going to heaven, but it's a sign that I have forsaken God, I have forfeited an inheritance, and I deserve even worse punishment than a child who grew up in an unbelieving home. Because you see, that's what Hebrews says. For if we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, 
There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. And the writer says, anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will be thought worthy Will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We parents have a great thing to tell our children. God is gracious. But we must also give them the firm warnings. If you turn away from this God who's promised you everything, even himself, there's nothing left but his judgment. So guard yourself against falling away. Guard yourself against trampling underfoot the blood of Jesus, treating it as a light thing. Let this weigh upon you. The living God has called me into his fellowship. And I must prize this as a treasured gift and give myself to the Lord. I think that's how God deals with the issues of presumption and self-deception, with strong warnings. Well, what a gracious God we have. What a faithful God. Boys and girls, God says to you, you belong to him. He promises you Jesus as your Savior and to wash your sins. And he says to you, believe on me, trust in me, live for me, and inherit a life eternal in my presence. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we are humbled by your word. We thank you for your grace to believers and to their children. Pray for your mercies upon us, and we pray, Lord, especially for your grace to the children of your people. Oh, Lord, you know the great need of the Spirit. No parent, no church can make a heart to love you or fear you. You know the great sorrows of your people when they see covenant children wandering from the way. We cry out to you, Lord. We plead for your mercies. We know that you are the God, a faithful shepherd who seeks wandering sheep. You are aware of everyone that's missing, and you are the God who pursues them. And we do plead with you, God, as a body, that you would have great compassion. Show yourself to be a God who is strong in love. And that you will convict every heart who has in any way squandered the inheritance. May they be reawakened that there is no life but in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh God, hear our prayer. Have mercy upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.